0: You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to Garibaldi Red, the Nottingham Forest podcast, Nottinghamshire Live. My name is Matt Davis and we're here for our second summer interviews with former Reds. I'm delighted to be joined by former Forest right back Brian Laws. Brian, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And yourself, it looks like fantastic weather we haven't uh intermittently fantastic yeah it's a bit uh <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get from one minute to the next but it's sunny where you are certainly it looks very nice there yeah
1: yeah sunny scunny that's what they call it
0: absolutely absolutely um i, I suppose we should start just with the beginning for you you, you started in the northeast uh and you, you went to the famous walls End boys club is that right where i think it was over 60 pros have come through they've had people go to world cups like shearer carrick and people like that i mean yeah. Did did you know you were uh decent as a kid or were you in such elite company that you thought you might actually be good enough when you're at Wall's End?
1: <laughs> funny, what, I mean, obviously living in Walls End was um it, it sort of was my focal point. Um somewhere to go. It kept me off the streets, of course. Um but I love football and um at a young age and and it just seemed to attract you. It was it was it was just a an indoor five-a-side area where we were playing, and all of a sudden, they just expanded into this uh, football and factory uh, of players. And when you're talking about over 60 players who play professional football, and we're talking about at the most elite uh, part of their game as well, um, is incredible. When you Because when you look at where, where Walls End Boys Club is, and what it, you know. and the, what attracts it, there's nothing there so the fact that it's had a factory of footballers is incredible and I didn't realise at the time, I have to say, it was just about me enjoying my football, it was five aside, it was eleven aside and I was there probably three times a week and um, like I said it, there was some good people there who were running it and uh, kept you in good, in good tact and, and of course they watched how you were playing and they would invite you to sort of little trial games and would you represent the the boys club as a, as a team? Uh, unknown to me, they were, they were winning everything from every, you know, every level from an under 10s all the way through to an under 15s team. It was, an, it was an amazing sort of process.
0: So was it football or nothing for you growing up? Did you ever have a, a plan B or was, were all your eggs in this one basket?
1: Yeah, well, I had, I did have a plan B. Plan, plan A was obviously the football and plan B was football um that was it (laughs) (laughs) that was it it was like there is just nothing on the horizon that actually attracted me um I was quite handy as a you know in terms of my um handiwork I was always good with tools and stuff like that um so maybe if anything if I wasn't a footballer would have gone into the building trade probably I, I, I would suspect I would have gone down that line
0: How did you end up at Forest then in the late 80s? You'd been at Middlesbrough and you were establishing a a very good career there, although it sounds like you had some, it was a difficult club to play for with like financial problems and they were struggling. I mean, how did you end up in Nottingham then?
1: Well, as you said, you know, I was playing for uh, Middlesbrough at the time and when I first arrived at uh, Middlesbrough, um, you know, it was only like 12 months later, the club folded, um, liquidation, gates were locked, um we, we couldn't get any kit uh all our boots and all all uh everything was was stored away we couldn't touch it you couldn't get back in the ground uh all the phones were switched off there was just it was sort of unbelievable um at that that period of time because we weren't getting paid uh and we didn't know what to do um and um you know there was a the manager at the time was uh was uh, Bruce uh, Rioc, who was a coach at the time, uh, but stayed on, um, not getting paid. But he just tried to keep us together. And it's, it's interesting because he kept us together. And there was about 12 of us at the time. Everybody else flew the nest and sort of signed for other clubs. And we were entitled to, actually, at the time, is to sign for other for clubs because we had no contracts. Our contracts were nil and void. Um, but he, you know... Uh, we sort of kept in touch with, um, um, you know, the now uh, chairman and owner of, uh, of of Middlesbrough Football Club, uh, Steve Gibson. Uh, he was just a young, twenty four year old guy who was who had a business, and uh, he was sort of almost bankrolling a little bit, um, you know giving players some 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 of his money to to keep us going because we had mortgages to pay and you know the, there was a major panic on our hands first time ever I had a man you know at the bank ring me up and asking me when when we're going to get a payment for your mortgage and you know I know the, I know in the modern day footballers don't even know the word mortgage um, but it was yeah it's scary times I had two small children at the time and so to to be locked out at that stage it was pretty frightening not knowing whether I had work or or a job. Um, uh, but as I said, Bruce was was fantastic in keeping us together. And in fact, he got us training, believe it or not, um, just to keep fit, really, until we found out exactly what was going on. But um, there was the season was uh, coming upon us, and we didn't even have a, a training pitch, let alone a, a football pitch to play on. Um, and we ended up training in the local park. We had, like I said, we had no kit, so. It, it you know it was almost ticket your tops off. Here's the goalposts, and it was back to you know the kids, your school kids stuff. This is a this is professional footballers here, and um, you know when we're talking like Gary Pallister, who was a centre half, of Steve, uh, and, and Tony Mowbray, you know, uh, who was manager at Blackburn, and Colin Cooper. We had some great players, uh, Bernie Slavin, um, great goal scorer, who we had no idea what to do, and. Thankfully, Bruce Rio kept us together, and then Steve Gibson come along and uh, eventually got the club running again and, and obviously reformed. Uh, and we played our very first game, um, not at Earls uh, Park, but it was at uh, Hartlepool, we loaned them, um, and we hadn't even played a preseason game or anything yet. That mentality and that togetherness, let me tell you, struck so hard with every player. That we just worked our socks off in that season. We got promoted, believe it or not, incredible. And we went on two seasons to get into the top league of the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of the football league. And it was an incredible turnaround. And that was when, I suppose, Forrest showed their interest when you know we were going really, really well. And I think it's well documented. Uh, Cluffy's a uh, a borough lad in a way where he's born. His brother was uh, lives in, in, in Middlesbrough, and I think part of it in the back of my mind thinks he only signed me because I could at least take him um, some messages to his brother, um, <laughs> because he yeah you know that was <laughs> I never had the feeling that um, I was his first choice in terms of um, uh, of, a, of a player because I've been in management and I'm sure many managers will say that they would never sign anybody unless they've seen them play at least. I had the most extraordinary meeting with Brian Clough when he eventually decided to come in for me, which I was very excited about because Forest were a club that were going places. Brian Clough, manager, who wouldn't want to be part of that team? And um, when I first met him at uh, the city ground, it was, it was incredible. He, he just, just laid the cards on the table and said, listen, I'm going to ask you a question. Are you a good player or a bad player? And I, I thought it was quite extraordinary to ask a, a, you know, a guy who's going to come and play for you um, to ask that question. Anyway, I just I thought it would be a bit arrogant. I said, yeah, I think I'm a good player. He went, ah, we'll find out. I says, <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by that? He says, well, I haven't seen you play. Lad, I haven't seen you play. And he said, uh, and I'm going to tell you one thing. If you are a good player, then you tell everybody I signed you if you're rubbish there was a few choice words what he mentioned what he said and i'm not going to say it online on on camera so um he said but if you're not ron fenton signed you make sure everybody knows that if you're rubbish (laughs) it was like that was the start of the affair i suppose (laughs) because um you know normally you just get up off the chair and walk out, wouldn't you? But it was like, no, I just want to be part of this. I want to, he's such a, a character and I just wanted to be part of it. And I thought at first, I thought, this has got to be a joke. Really? He's trying to, you know, pull my leg. I don't know, no, he was telling the truth. He hadn't seen me play at all.
0: Did you think the, like you say, your northeast East roots, did you think you'd get on with him straight away? Did it give you a leg up with, compared to other new signings? Or was he bit, even harder on you and, Gave
1: you a bit more stick? <laughs> no, I, I mean, you know, I thought obviously the the northeast um, connection might be sort of a significant uh, help for me, um, but it was only my very first pre-season training that I realised actually the reality was starting to hit me. Maybe reasons why he actually brought me in was uh, my very first pre-season. We went to um, to Italy, and um, and obviously on the way back we got back into the airport. And uh, Cluffy came up to me and give, the, give me a, a wad of cash, <laughs> a, a wad of cash, a bottle of whiskey. And he said, take that to my brother and walked off. <laughs> so I, you know, I have to say, I didn't know he had a brother. and I didn't know he had a brother at the time. Um, I thought he was a one-off. Um, so I'm looking around and I'm thinking, Who's his brother? I had no idea. So I looked at Nigel Clough, who, who was uh, in, in the airport, and I said, Nigel, you, you, your dad's just chucked me this wad of cash. He said, Put the money away, put the money away. You know, I, uh, And he says, and a bottle of whiskey, and he says, Give that, go and give that to my, uh, to my brother. Who's his brother? And he says, Oh, he lives in Middlesbrough. I went, Does he? <laughs> uh, right. Cause I was because obviously I was only just at the club, so I still was traveling for Middlesbrough at the time. So he told me uh, to go and deliver this uh, to his brother. So I said to Nigel, Where does he live? So he's given me the address and he's given me a contact number. Anyway, when I rang it, when I rang this number, I thought it was Cluffy. I thought it was Cluffy on the phone because it sounded exactly like him. And I, so I was double taking, and, and I said, "Oh, um, uh, it, it's Brian Laws here from Nottingham Forest." He went, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. He said, uh, "I'm expecting you." I went, "Oh, are oh, yeah, okay." Um, where you know where do you live? And he told me. So I've gone, I've gone in in a car, and um, lo and behold, he was standing outside of his property, and he was being so secretive. He was looking around, making sure they you know, he's watching. <laughs> And then he said, reversing, reversing to the back of the, you know, to his house. So I thought, like oh, So I've reversed in. And he went, flip your boot open. So I flipped my boot open. And all I've heard is thud. <laughs> and, he, and then he's put the uh, the boot down. So, of course, I'm thinking, what on earth has gone in my boot, by the way? And I've handed him whatever exchanges that Cluffy wanted to give me, uh, give him. And I drove off. And I thought... Blimey, what the hell have I got in the back of my boot? So I'm panicking and I start to get a sweat on. I think I've got to have a look. I can't just go back to Nottingham and not have a look. So anyway, I opened the boot and opened this bag. It was just full of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually potatoes. <laughs> so I've gone back to Nottingham on the Monday Monday morning, I drive into the car park. Who's there waiting for me? It was coffee. So he's waved me over. He said, come here. So he said, have you got it? Have you got it? I said, well, I've got something in my boot, He went, open your boot. And he's lifted the boot open. And he's, oh, scummaging in his bag. And he's picked out a potato. And he's gone, oh. And he's smelling them. Smell them. Smell them. You don't get potatoes like that anymore. It's, oh, he's smelling them. He said, in fact, you can have one. And he handed me one over. And that was it for doing <laughs> so I got a spud. Then I realised I think, did he actually sign me just to do this? I wonder if he signed me or did he really <laughs> it was honestly it was crackers. Crackers.
0: So you've you've joined this club, you know, as double European cup winners, very successful, then on the up again in the late eighties. You what were you thinking by this point? what what was going on around the club? Did you think this isn't what I signed up for then?
1: Well, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I've been I've been used to managers who are very regimental. Um, they work the workers socks off, you know, very team ethic. And yet, i got, walked into into Nottingham Forest, and it was very relaxed, you know. And I'm looking around the dressing room, see Stuart Pearce, Neil Webb, Nigel Clough, and I'm going, "Oh my god!" It's like you know, international players here. And yet, it, it was like so relaxed and pre-season was like a doddle it was ridiculous we didn't do anything compared to what i was used to and i remember uh, uh on our second day of pre-season training um Stuart pierce nearly knocked me out and <laughs> he he grabbed a hold of me and said what are you doing because i was at the front of the you know when we were running and i've been used to just living well run it you know like top of your game I want to be the fittest player that uh, Forrest have got so I'm there you know at right the front and, and it halfway around just grabbed all me who do you think you are get back in there he says and learn your trade when you come here we don't do anything like that <laughs> I was like what I haven't even got broke a sweat yet so it was it was a, a realisation of going oh I'm going to have to change my game my, my, my whole attitude towards football and um, as the weeks went by, I, I, I sort of observed what they were doing and started to get back into the into what they were doing, rather than this regimental uh, thing that I used to do with other football teams. So, God, that was a real shock to me, I have to say. And, I, and in the six years I'd worked with Cluffy, he never done a training session. He never taught us how to do anything. We never practiced anything. We didn't talk about the opposition. Uh, we never practised corners, free kicks, you name it. It was just five or seven football. It was ridiculous.
0: So how did it work then? I mean, Clough was, uh, everyone talks about the genius of Clough. Mm. What, what was it then for for you when you were there?
1: I wish I could bottle it and I could, because t- I'll tell you what, I'd make a fortune. I, I, I really, you, do you know, I, I think the bottom line he just brought in, in, in what I would say, intelligent footballers, people who knew what they were doing when they had the ball, and I think a lot of these talks were, if you don't know what you're doing on the football field, how the heck do I know what you're doing? You know, so he he really wanted players um, that knew the trade, that knew the, you know, how to pass a ball, keep it simple. He wasn't looking for you to, to beat six players and think, oh, that's great. He, he would rather you do the simple things and the simple things well. And I think that was one of the things that the simplicity of the, the actual game, he just kept it very simple. It was a case of we keep the ball, the opposition can't score. And that's the way we sort of have that philosophy. And, and when you've got mixed in with good players who keep that, that simplicity, it seemed to work. And and it did. It worked. It was incredible to be part of because, like I said, I I was like in a coiled spring. I just wanted to run around and you know. And it was like no, stand still. Wait for the ball. Come to you, and you know you deal with it. And so it was. It was. Uh, it's uh, an incredible uh, philosophy, and it's one I've never seen before, and it will never be uh, ever ever repeated again.
0: You went to Wembley. Uh, so many times there. You won a couple of league cups. You played in the full members cup um, uh, as well. Did it ever get a bit kind of second nature to you? Do you ever take that for granted that success as a team or not? Um,
1: I I did take for granted the fact that we were such a, we were a good side that we our expectations were bordering on um, cockiness, I suppose, saying that you know we are a good side, and and that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, I think with Cluffy, you were always had that uh, mentality that God, we could win something, you know, because we played, you know, attractive football. We were a pleasure to watch. Um, we were a pleasure to referee. I know referees really seen us in a different light because we were never back chatty with referees. In fact, if we did, it, it, was, uh, it wasn't the referee giving us a scold and it was the manager. So it, it was like, in fact, you would bring you off before the referee did. Um, so, you know, just simple lessons, but one that we got a real confidence of going forward um, that uh, we always thought we would win cups or, or be involved in something and certainly be at the top end of the table.
0: You mentioned referees there. I suppose it's 30 years today since the 1991 Cup final, which you came on in. I should ask you about that, really, in terms of Roger Milford and your your memories of that. You know, you got on because Gazza did Gary Charles, basically, and injured himself. How do you look back on that game now, all these years later?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was gutted, really, I have to say. Um, that... I didn't do Gary Charles before before Gascoigne did. <laughs> <laughs> he nicked my place. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that was a, a sore point. You know, I played in all the games, leading up to it other than the semi-final because I got, I got injured. Uh, and, you know, my expectations was I was going to be playing. And uh, to be told the, the night before that I wasn't playing, not by Cluffy by any chance, you know, typical, isn't it? He didn't come and tell you. Um we trained on the on the on the sort of Friday uh in London and Cluffy give uh Piercy sure Pearce, our captain, a scrumpled up piece of paper when he when he got on the bus and he said, uh, and he unraveled it like a scruffy old piece of paper he had and he said, uh, this is the team at Starton. This is this is with our club captain with not the manager giving us the team. <laughs> it was the club captain, and he's reading it out. He said, "This is the starting eleven, blah, blah blah. And I'm waiting for my name, and it didn't come out. So I, so I was, I was throwing stuff at uh, Percy. Went, "Shut sure up and sit down!" I'll, you're talking rubbish, you know. And he said, "And he just held this piece of paper. Up. That's what I'll be given. If you've got anything to say, go and see the gaffer." So I couldn't wait to find out, but Cloughy was nowhere to be seen. He wouldn't let me see him until the the day of the game, and I just could not get to that point of which I wanted to have a real argument with him. It was, I didn't want to spoil the day for everybody else. I had to take it on the chin and egg it. it was a, a, a real blow to me to miss out on the on the final. But, you know, it was, you know, you know, an opportunity, not only for me as a footballer to play in the FA Cup final, certainly to start, uh, but it was the first opportunity for Coffee to win it you know, he's won everything else but the FA Cup and so I wanted to, I actually really wanted to win that for him uh, or be part of the team that could do it for him um, but it just didn't happen on the day and of course that, that the challenge on, you know, don't get me wrong, Gary Charles, you know, he's a good player and, you know, It's just that rivalry you have. You just don't really, you know, somebody's taking your place. It's the last, you know, it's the last thing you you really want to see. But certainly didn't want him to get injured in the way that he did, particularly off Gascoigne. They both got injured and uh, and, and to sort of come on uh, doesn't feel the same. And my memories of it isn't great because we lost the game. Um, So, all in all, it wasn't a great. Uh, FA Cup final for me or for the fans really it was a real disappointment
0: Was that kind of a watershed moment for the, for the club and Brian do you think did, did that loss really hurt him and hurt the players going into the, the next season or two when you really did decline and end up getting relegated Yeah I think that was the do you know that, that was one of the, when I look back
1: maybe not at the time but when I look back now and I look back at his uh, attitude on the bench uh, Cluffy It was this arrogance that we all had. Uh, We're expecting, we're expecting to go there and win. And, um, you know, like I said, we didn't talk about their opposition. We didn't practice anything. Um, We just did our normal duties as we would do if it was a league game. Um, But Cluffy's um, sort of not negative. The fact that he just sat down and really when there was a moment when we needed probably the only time for him to come and give the players a lift on the park when there was a bit of extra time and and he didn't he just sat there and watched and and I thought that when I look back I think you know maybe that was a period which he didn't have this special effect as much as he really had it in the past and the questions started to arise then about well what you know what's happening and of course the demise of the of the team after that was was incredible from a team that we're talking about the same players, really, who have gathered momentum and been at the top end and, and been in most you know, finals to, be, to you know end up relegating.
0: Yeah, well, well, come on to that. I just wanted to go back to, you were kind of at your peak of your powers in the late 80s and early 90s. I've asked Steve Chettle this before, you know, you're playing for a successful team, you're a regular and you've got that... Belief in yourself, and did you ever think you might get a look in with England around, you know, late eighties, heading into Italian ninety, or was it just a little bit beyond you?
1: Um, no, I, I mean, I, I did get the recognition, and um, uh, I think Peter Taylor, not Peter Taylor, sorry, um, uh, it was um, Graham Taylor, sorry, Graham Taylor was the, the manager at the time for England, and uh, he, he called me and. Selected me for the, for the England B. Uh, and Nigel Clough was included in that squad as well. So we both went down, which I was quite excited about because obviously it gave me an opportunity to maybe fight for a place. Uh, and then a few days before that, I, I was really ill. Um, I was coughing and spluttering. And gosh, any, any player, you know, not feeling right would probably pull out. But I didn't. I didn't want to pull out. Didn't want to miss this opportunity because, as, as you just mentioned, I wasn't sure I would get another opportunity. So I thought I'm, I'm going to go through with this, and um, I could hardly breathe, really. Um, but I chose to take the game in, and it wasn't one of my best games. In fact, I, I struggled through it to be honest. And uh, and great. And I remember, Greg coming up to me afterwards and said, "I don't suppose you'll be happy with that performance, will you?" And I, I said, "No, I feel awful." Um, and he said well opportunities come and he says I may look again but never did you know which is when I look back I wish I had maybe brave enough to turn around and say do you know what I don't think I'm I'm, uh, strong enough or or well enough to actually play a game and uh, do myself justice Um, but I suppose that's my uh, way of thinking, of things, thinking, well, if I didn't take this opportunity now, I may never get it. And, uh, you know, because getting a cap at that time was, you know, it was really hard to come by, not, not like it is today. Um, so in in the end, you know, my failure in that performance probably was the one why I didn't get enough uh, sort of recognition on that side. Um, but Cluffy, Cluffy um, was disappointing for me.
0: Hmm. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we talk about the latter year is that Forrest was Hillsborough, which is obviously like one of the most horrific days in football um not obviously for Liverpool, but also for you guys and you you were there. what are your recollections of that day because it probably didn't uh, unfold as we know now I mean were you in the picture of what was actually happening at the time? Could you process yeah. the horror of it uh, 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 you know when you were there living it in real time
1: no I mean it was it was strange, you know. When you again, it, it's a it's a game that I will never forget, um, never, because it, the the memories are so strong, and I can still see faces. I can still remember uh, where I was on the pitch. I remember actually I was taking a throw in near Lepin- and uh, roughly about twenty yards away from the corner flag. Um, because the game started so ferociously, the noise of the actual um, st- stadium prior to the game was noisy, um, and the kickoff it was like deafening uh, noise and a lot of screaming. And at the time, you just that, you think it's just the the, the fans obviously uh, are just going nuts for this game. But when I was te- like I said, twenty yards away from Lepping Lane End, mm. taking a throw in. And just as I was going to take a throw in, there was people running across, supporters running across me. And my very first thing, and I'm not embarrassed to say it, my first thing was, I thought it was just a pitch invasion. Uh, And I think most of us did, um, was, get off the pitch, you idiots. You know, come on. We're we're trying to play a game. It's only five minutes old, let alone anything else. And uh, the referees calling us off because there were so many people running across the pitch. Uh, and the noise was so deafening. You couldn't really pick out what anybody was saying. So we went across. I, and, of course, the lap in the end was was dug out. So those who were suffering, you couldn't see them. Um, and all I could see was people coming over the top um, of the fencing. So that was my very first uh, an immediate thoughts and when we got into the dress room the manager said at the time relax get your feet out calm down you know the referees already said to me that we we're just going to try and clear the pitch and we'll get back on so uh, let's get our thoughts back on the game blah 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 and then it was then you know that's all we thought so so for the next 10 minutes nothing uh, and then the chief inspector came into the dressing room and uh, he's got his cap on, walked in and cluffy has gone, what's going on? And he said, uh, well, I just want to let you know that uh, there's been a few fatalities uh, and uh, we're not sure whether the game's going to kick on. And Cloughy's gone, what? Somebody's dead? Are you telling me somebody's dead? And he said, yes, yes, but we're going to try and get it sorted out. We're not sure what's going on. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. My lads are not going to be playing. My lads are going to get changed. There's a death. And that was it. And it almost Cluffy was taking the responsibility to actually say to us, it ain't going on. Um, and we're thinking, what, what, you know, what, who's done what? You know, you're thinking, this i been stabbed. have no idea really what, what the... Uh, initial thing was and um and it was only then that we we'd heard there was like loads of bodies lying on the on the actual uh on the pitch. Then that was the first time panic set in because immediate my immediate thoughts was my family I had my family, I had my wife and my kids in the stand. I had no idea it was all about Leppin Lane at that time. None of us did. So we all panicked we all got changed and we all got – we just wanted to find our family uh, as quickly as we possibly could. But it was the most eeriest thing I've ever seen. Um, walking down the tunnel to still a full foolish stadium, but it was just a matter of silence and um, everything was like in slow motion. It was just horrific. Um we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't, so you can you imagine we couldn't make contact with the family members. So we had no idea where this was coming from. Um, but once we, there was a relief to know, it, you know, your family's okay. But then the reality of what actually has happened was just uh, enormous. And uh, like I said, it's cruelest thing I've uh, ever, ever seen in football um, and the most damaging. And uh, my heart goes out to the, Liverpool supporters and families who have lost lost, you know, the, you know, the children, uh, grandchildren, and fathers that were there. It's just uh, awful, awful. And uh, you know, my respects. Uh, every year that goes by, you know, and it's celebrated, you know, or recognised. I'm certainly thinking and looking back on those times, and I'm sure all the players are like that.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I don't want to pry too deeply, but how do you deal with it as a group? I mean, there's no psychiatrists and it's a different world back then i mean did you have to rally together and help each other cope with it because you know people forget footballers are only human you know especially today but what you know at any point in time don't they
1: yeah i mean we listen we didn't have you know we didn't have psychologists or or that kind of support package uh you know to help us through those things it was um we had to deal with it ourselves you know we had a couple of days off um just to get our heads around it um you know it, there was a bit of silence about it really you know we just gathered in the information that was that we'd we, we to the show and what how it was uh, unraveling um and we're sort of ma- making our own thoughts of it but um it was we you know it, the, the sort of semi-finals of an, of an FA Cup is something that you get, well, um, we'll play it again. But at the time we thought, well, oh, this is just going to be done. You know, there's no way we could play football. Not now, not after that. Um, the fact that it did go ahead was uh, was an incredible thing, but one that we never, ever thought in our, in our minds that actually who's going to come out winner on this? Um, certainly Forrest would never be... Uh, Seen as a as a team that was wanted to win the win the actual replay, I think the whole nation was firmly on Liverpool's side, and uh, and of course it, it, that's the way it panned out. you know in the in the end we didn't deliberately go to <laughs> lose the game by any way, stretch of imagination, but even Cluffy was uh, a one for saying, "Unfortunately, we're going to be the losers in this one."
0: how was that incident with John Aldridge view that he ruffled your hair after you scored an own goal? And it's such yeah. a weird game. I mean, how did that pass off? And do you, what, do you speak to him now, John Aldridge? Is it something you can, I do. On? Yeah.
1: What, yeah. You know, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, at the time, you know, people talk about that funny enough about the disrespect of it all. I just remember when I, when I, you know, I obviously deliberately sliced the ball in the back of the net didn't I um uh and uh, you know I, I fell to my knees and I at first I thought it was one of my own players you know got you know so come on um but it, I didn't realize it was Aldridge until a, I would say about 10 15 seconds later um and I you know I'm just thinking did that did he actually do that and I remember, uh, so after the game, um, Cloughy was gone mental about it, and uh, you know what well, he was not happy about it. I didn't go to the player at the time, and um, funny enough, we had to play Liverpool in the league. I don't know if you remember this; um, you might remember, not remember this, but we had to play them about two, three weeks later in the league at Anfield, and. Uh, and it was the first time. Cluffy came up to me and said, "If you get sent off, I don't mind. You know, basically, give me licence to do whatever I want to." do. <laughs> and I remember actually um, go, turning up at Anfield, getting off the bus, and the one person that was waiting for me was John Aldridge uh, at the at the door, and he was apologising, saying, "I didn't mean it like that. didn't." He? I said, well, "I just went. Listen, it's too late anyway." you know, get, get out of my way. And, and I was so wound up, um, you know, the fact that Cluffy's given me the license to go and, you know, nobble him if I wanted to, you know, on Anfield. And, and by heck did I try? By heck did I try? He jumped out of every tackle I went in for. Even the referee was turned his back. That's all he go. Go on then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, but i never managed to actually physically, uh, catch him on the day because he was just ready for it he was waiting for it um but you know when it, whatever time it will happen it will happen you always get your, your comeuppance don't you? You, you you always think back oh, don't you whether it takes six weeks six months six years and it and it, uh, he did get his comeuppance in one respect um you know several years later when he was in management and uh and he was manager at Tranmere, mm. and uh and I sold him a player that was completely duff. and uh, <laughs> and I was happy to exchange it and telling them all the, you know how great this player was, uh, and all of just rang me up about a month later. I went, you, you know, yeah, <laughs> who was that? Uh, it was Ivano Bonetti. By
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's a different story.
1: <laughs> oh, that's another story, but that's not about Forest, is it?
0: No, no, that's a different one. <laughs> Let's go back to Forest before we open a can of worms. Um, yeah. You've had so many good years at Forest. What do you look back with a bit of disappointment about? You know, your last couple of years and losing your place and bowing out, and you know the team going down. Does that just kind of take the edge off things a bit for you when it comes to Forest?
1: Well, when we after the relegation, um, you know, there was going to be a significant change. There had to be. Um, because, you know, when we talked, you know, I talked earlier about how we trained and what how, what was our philosophy and how we approached games and it never changed for, for years, for decades. That's the way Cluffy was, that's the way we approached it, training was very minimal. Um, but the game changed when uh, the back pass rule came in and the law change came into into effect where we couldn't slow the game down when you could easily pass the ball back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper could pick it up and, and therefore he could throw it back out again and then he can get it back and we can get a, catch our breath and then go and counter-attack again. Whereas the, the law change, you couldn't do that. In fact, if he did pass it back to the goalkeeper, he couldn't pick it up. He had to kick it. And this is where a lot of things happened. First of all, the goalkeeper had to be good with his feet which was not one of the uh, main attributes of a, of, a, of a goalkeeper that you'd be looking at. But he had to be good with his feet, good with his kicking. But you also had to be good under, and, and be able to control the ball and, and all those aspects that were never questioned before. And the game was never going to slow down because it was the, you know the, game, the ball was always in play. So it never went out. It was always in play. And therefore, teams prepared for it. They got fitter. They brought in um, sports science. They brought in uh, fitness fitness guys. We didn't have any of that. And six months into the season, we knew it was going to happen. We knew this is the reason. We are struggling. We're not training hard enough. We're not fit enough. We are out playing teams for about 80 minutes, and the last 10 minutes, it just blows to one side. Physically, it would blow us to one side. And that that, that really was the turning point. Because Cluffy wouldn't change, and of course relegation accelerated everything else. He had to leave. New era. So a manager has to come in. Frank Clark comes in. Super guy, and I, you know, I love him to death. Uh, he came in and he wore a pair of shoes he had to fill, by the way. Um, so he, he he had to start again, and he had to recognise what went wrong and get players fitter younger, stronger, to, to match the the athleticism of, of all the other teams. And, um, and of course, that's when you start, Cogs start going. You think, I'm going to have to start um, maybe thinking about my future and uh, what's my next step because I still had two years left in my, in, of my contract and, you know, I didn't want to see it Frazzle out to nothing. You know, I, I worked too hard for that. So my decision was then to look at other avenues and uh strange enough Grimsby Town was looking for a manager and uh and I, I was fortunate enough to get an interview first of all, um, after I'd taken my f- coaching badges and uh and it sparked my career into management and coaching. So in a way it was the right time for me to leave, but it was I wanted to be part of the rebuild to get us back into the Premier League uh, for Forest, but it was I had to make a choice, and I thought that in the end I, I did make the right choice because I, I've had a great career in management as well.
0: How much do you think the games evolved then in the last thirty years since you've been in management, and then more recently watching Forest, you know, most weeks for Radio Nottingham? Is it a totally different sport now?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, listen, if I was. In my capacity as a player playing in the current day now, I don't think I could earn a living. I'd be sent off because the the you know my my, my uh, main attributes were uh, you know I give it my all and I will wear my heart on my sleeve and and I'll go crunching tackles. I'll go and hurt you know I'll go and hunt the ball to to win it. Um, it's non-existent now the change that I've seen over the decades particularly in management and now obviously watching on the side is um, the game is now it's, you've got to be fit super fit um, athlete you've got to be an athlete if I had the if I had the knowledge what these current players have I wish I had it, it uh, given to me because I would have I wouldn't abuse it I would have Taking it with both hands and, and being the fittest possible player and at the right things, don't have all the right things and, and, and prolong my career. I mean, it, as it stands now, I could play until I'm in my 40s. You know, nobody tackles you anymore. You can stand off and you can just pass it around. It's just, um, there's no contact. It, it, it's extremely annoying to watch. <laughs>
0: How do you view Forest these days? Then you watch them for radio, not see You spoke earlier about um, players who knew their jobs, a confidence, and arrogance, uh, a style. Those strike me as all the things that Forest haven't really had over the last few years. I mean, how do you see them when you watch them now from the stands?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, we. I think we would you class it as an identity? Forest had an identity um, under Cluffy. I think you could. If you actually switched the television volume off, didn't listen to com- commentators, didn't who was what, didn't know who was playing, and just watched us and observed us, I think people ninety nine percent of the time say that's a cluffy side that that's the way that Forest play, that's a Forest team. Do that with this t- current team, and then you wouldn't have a clue. Um, and that's the that the, the they are not really had an identity for a long, long time, um, and. And I think that's been the the problem you know the philosophy is uh, have not really been allowed to to evolve because God, the turnover of managers has been absolutely ridiculous ridiculous um, so managers can't manage anymore they can't put how can a manager put put down his philosophies and how he wants the team to play and, and, and express themselves in a manner of which you want the whole ethos of the football club to follow. And you get sacked four months later. So you try somebody else. It's just, unfortunately, the game's changed so much now. It's all about winning games. And if you lose, if you win three, you're, you're fantastic. If you lose three on the bounce, you're out. That's, that's the awful reality of the modern day management now. So, They've lost an identity for sure, and how do they get that back? Stability, trust in people who are working at the football club, giving ownership back to the manager to allow him to develop that sort of uh, philosophy. At uh, the moment, it, I don't think any managers had that opportunity to uh, to really, you know, empower the the, the team to uh, to go on and, and continue this theme of. The one, you know, and I'm going to put an example. For instance, Swansea. You know, Swansea have got an identity, I think they play the play a certain way they have done for a decade or so now, and no matter what manager comes in, the ownership is the clubs, not the managers. It's the club's philosophy of how they want to play, and they attract managers to fulfil those those roles. That's why they they get more and more successful. Um, and i think forrest may have to go back down to that
0: what about you in management then i mean have you you know had enough of it now or if the right offer came along would you, would you entertain it
1: um if forrest come along tomorrow uh, i'll 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 be there ready <laughs> <laughs> but it, it would have to be something like that um, yeah. you, you know it's I love the game. It's all—it's all I've known for my whole life, um, and that's all I've from Wolves and Boys Club all the way through. So there's, you can't—you oh, cut me open. That's where I bleed football. So it's not something that uh, you can switch off. Um, however, it, it is how it is. It's just a strange game to to manage in now. It's—it's it, it's very fearful. Uh, social media have gather momentum and, and can hire and fire a manager it's so quick. Um, you know, you can't, like I said, you, it's so difficult for managers now, modern day manager to actually uh, put his philosophies forward and change for the good um, because there is going to be bumps along the way um, in doing that. Unfortunately, you can't afford a bump in the modern day football. If you hit a bump, you sort of you're out the first time, I and mean, that's that's that can't be right, can it?
0: How do you find watching as a, a pundit? Then do you view it through a different lens than you would in the dugout? Are you trying and see it from a player's point of view, or you or a fan's point of view? What's it like working for Radio Nottingham?
1: Yeah, I, 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 you try and put a perspective on it and say, well, look, I honestly think this is what the players trying to achieve. Um, but then sometimes I, I do watch games and think, well, do they actually know what they're doing? You know, it seems they're very individual, not, it's not very collective. Um, but the changeover of players is just as bad. You know, when you're talking about each window that goes by, they've had 13 players coming in. Who can, you know, consolidate and do, you know, and settle players in? It's such a short space of time of that amount of players coming in. When you're talking, Foreign players to try and settle into Nottingham and in, you know the English way. Um It's so hard to to hit the ground running with that many uh, turnover, and the, and recruitment has to be absolutely spot on to allow you to do that. Absolutely spot on. So it's been very very put. So I'm a bit I'm more critical of the off field rather than the on field. I sympathise with the on field. Sympathise with the manager uh, because he can only play with what he's got.
0: So. Just lastly then, if you were to go back to you know the boy being the boy growing up in the northeast in the sixties and seventies, can you believe the life you've had in football? Would you have done anything differently?
1: Um I wouldn't change a thing. Other than um I might grab a hold of that FA Cup um piece of paper uh that Piercy had, and I'd like them to change that. <laughs> yeah that's my only that's my only thing Uh, because i would definitely have had a rubber gonna be rubbing out (laughs) charles's name
0: oh dear well brian it's been a great pleasure to have you on you've got some fantastic stories that i think listeners will definitely have enjoyed and uh we appreciate your work on radio nottingham we'll be back uh next week with um probably gary mills i think is the next one who you oh, might dear. well know yes i brian. do brian no, no, so that should be well. a good one as well uh thanks very much for everyone who watched along so thank you for listening to garibaldi red a nottingham forest podcast if you enjoyed today's episode then please let us know we love hearing your feedback We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.